seats and also please turn back to scripture with me and to the portion of God's word that we read just a moment ago in Genesis. <coughs> Genesis chapter 3, really looking from about verse 14. Okay, so if, 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 if you're a regular with us at London City Presbyterian Church, and if you were here last Sunday morning, I'm sure you'll recall where we got to in our study of the book of Genesis. I guess, I suppose it's true, that last Sunday we left things at a rather bleak and dark and a depressing place because we'd seen the situation of the fall really we'd seen the serpent the evil one we'd seen him approach Adam and Eve we had seen Adam and Eve eat from the tree and then we left it by looking at the do you remember the immediate consequence of the fall They'd eaten from the tree, they'd found themselves naked, and they tried to cover up. Such was their shame. Do you remember that? The shame. Well, this, this morning, the intention is to pick it up from that point. We're going to carry on uh, from where we left off. And we're going to look at some of the further consequences of Adam and Eve's uh, sin. You've seen that the, f- the fall leads to shame. Look at the rest of the chapter. It deals with further curses, doesn't it? It deals with further consequences that, that sort of befall these three Guilty parties, Adam and Eve and the serpent. So that's our focus, you know, the the further consequences of sin. And I've said that there are three guilty parties. So you're not going to be all surprised to hear that during the sermon we're going to have three points, three headings. But let's, you know... Let's just go overboard in laying out the structure of the sermon before we begin, okay? There's going to be three points, but at each point, we're going to have two subheadings. So three points in the sermon, each with two subheadings. So enough, enough by way of introduction. Let's make a start here. Let's look at these verses. Genesis chapter 3, and let's consider our first point together. This is our first point. Let's look at the consequences of sin for the serpent. The consequences of sin for the serpent. So what does God say? Well, God uh, speaks to the serpent. What does he say? He says, cursed are you above all. All the livestock and all the wild animals. He says to the serpent, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, what's 
the content of that curse. Well, some people have read that, and what they've done is they've taken it um, far too literally. They've, they've read it far too literally. They, they read this curse to the serpent that you're going to crawl on your belly now, and they've seen in that the fact that, okay, before the fall, the serpent, the snake, must have cut about the Garden of Eden on four legs. But now, because of the fall, he is going to crawl about on his belly. Well, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case, but I doubt it. Friends, instead, what we have here is the illustrative humiliation of the serpent. What we've got here is a vivid picture of the humiliation of the evil one. Because you see, he, he, he's rebelled against God and he's used the snake to fulfill his evil purposes. So because of that, what does God do? Well, God injects or God infuses even the way that the snake moves with meaning. You know, now, because of the fall, now there's going to be this constant reminder of the serpent's part in that rebellion. Now, you know, for... There's going to be this perpetual reminder. Now people are going to look at this crawling in the dirt. People are going to look at the fact that this this, this snake is eating dust. And now they're going to see in that the rebellion. And they're going to see in that the humiliation of the evil one. The humiliation of the serpent. So... The first part of the curse of the serpent is humiliation. We've got that. Let's move on. Let's think. The second part, there's humiliation, but there's also a promise of defeat here for the serpent. Humiliation and promise of defeat. Now, do you have, if you were asked, do you have... A favourite Bible verse. Do you? I think it's, it's usually the case. I think when ministers are are uh, taken away to a communion somewhere, it's usually one of the questions you're asked. It's sort of the the after service fellowship. Do you have a, a favourite verse? I'm not even sure we're supposed to have favourite verses, are we? You know, all Scripture is is God breathed. But if we're allowed, and for what it's worth. The next verse is my favourite verse. Genesis 3.15. I preached on this maybe a year ago. Genesis 3.15. So what does it say? Well, get the first part of the verse. God speaks to the snake. What does he say? He says, I will put enmity, enmity. Between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And what God is doing there, God is promising to disrupt that. Do you remember the treasonous relationship that we looked at last week? 
you remember that, that man and the serpent, the mankind and the serpent, they got together and they conspired against God? Well, in Genesis 3.15, God is promising to disrupt that relationship. He is promising to put bad blood between the serpent and between mankind. But, but, that's only part of what God says here, isn't it? Because look at it. Just look at who exactly this enmity, this bad blood is between. Who exactly is it between? Do you see it? God inserts enmity between the serpent and the offspring of woman. The serpent. Bad blood between the serpent and the offspring. And do you know, do you know what the, the, the earth shattering, earth splitting miracle is there? Do you know why if you read that as you bring goosebumps every time you read? offspring is in the singular. It's a singular use of offspring. What does that mean? Well, it means that here God is promising that a time would come when one offspring, a time would come when one person would arise and have a particular enmity and a particular bad blood with a serpent. It's a promise that one would come, would rise up, one person, one seed of Eve would have a once and for all battle and a challenge to Satan. And the verse It just keeps getting better and better and better. Because how does it end? Have a look. How does Genesis 3.15 end? God says of this coming offspring, he says, this offspring will crush your head. The offspring will crush the head of the serpent and you, the serpent, will strike the heel of the offspring. could get that wrong. Don't get it wrong. The words are the same. See what I mean? It, it says the offspring will crush, the serpent will strike. Now those words in the original language, those words are the same. There's nothing really important about the words. What is important is the location on the body where those blows are struck. Do you see it? The serpent will strike the heel. The evil one will wound this offspring. But at the time of his injury, this representative of mankind, this one offspring, he will crush the head of the serpent. At the time, think about it. At the time of his suffering, the saviour of mankind, he will forever defeat the evil one. 
to begin to see the significance of the verse. Do you see it? It is amazing. Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy. And it is a prophecy of the cross of Jesus Christ. And just think about where it sits in the Bible. It's Genesis 3.15, isn't it? This is Genesis 3. This is just, you know, it was just a second ago, it was just a moment ago, that mankind fell into sin. It was just, what was it, four or five verses ago that, that, that Eve had taken the fruit. And yet, here is God with arms outstretched, even in the midst of these inevitable, these inescapable punishments and curses because of sin. Here is God. What is he doing? He is providing hope. He is providing hope for mankind. God curses the serpent, but at the same time, the beauty of it, God blesses mankind so point one the consequences of sin for the serpent for the serpent okay let's move on let's think about a second thing you know where i'm going i'm sure you do the consequences of sin for the woman the consequences of sin for the woman now i'm going to get killed when i go home i'm going to get into trouble for telling you this but uh, what was it? A couple of nights before my wife uh, gave birth to our first son, Colin. In fact, I've probably maybe even told you this before. But a couple of nights before she gave birth to Colin, Catherine uh, got really, really bad cramp in her leg. And she was jumping up and down uh, with pain, as much as uh, a, nine, a woman who is nine uh, months pregnant can jump up and down with pain. Um, a couple of days later, she gave birth to Colin. And uh, I spoke to her about it and I said, you know, how, how was it? You know, uh, Was it painful? And... Uh, she said, yes, it was. Uh, it was painful. But do you know what? It, it wasn't as bad as the cramp that I'd had uh, a couple of days ago. And I think she felt that she had got off lightly. And then Catherine has uh, recently given birth to Juliet. And again, I tentatively asked her, you know, how, how was it? And she said to me, the pain was indescribable you know she said to me that she honestly thought that she was going to die the pain was that bad and we see here where that misery and where that agony comes from in in genesis 3 and we see it in the first consequence of sin for the woman because of because as a result of her sin, as a result of her wickedness, God says to Eve, do you see what he says to Eve? I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Now, do you see what's happening there? 
just as he did with the serpent, God is providing a perpetual reminder to the woman of her heart in the rebellion. You know, he's setting a a constant reminder, almost not quite, but an eternal reminder of the atrocities that were committed in the Garden of Eden. And I would say to you, um, friends, please see here, and please take from this, that pain was never, ever part of God's original plan. Pain was never part of our original righteousness. Pain didn't happen prior to the fall. And, and scripture, scripture talks about childbirth in other places. And when it talks about childbirth, it always has it as the sort of ultimate pain. You know, in Micah 4, Isaiah 13, childbirth is equated with the sort of supreme, the, 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 the epitome of, of, of pain. And see here that it only comes about because of the wickedness of sin. The wickedness of sin. So if this morning you are experiencing pain, whether that be physical pain because of fatigue or illness or disease, or whether that be a an emotional pain because of grief or loss or even broken relationships. Know this. Know that God is not to blame for that situation. Instead, it is the fall. It is sin that has led to the inception. It is sin that has led to the beginnings so part of the, the consequence for the woman was the pain of childbirth but there's a second thing and any budding feminists here they're going to love this because in the sec- <laughs> because in the second part of verse 16 look what God says to the woman He says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So we've seen the pain of childbirth, yes. Now for the pain of subordination, the pain of subordination. Now, some feminist theologians would take issue here. And some feminist theologians would argue that what we see in Genesis 3 is that male headship begins after the fall. That would be the argument. Male headship begins after sin. But that's not the case, is it? Do you remember what we saw two weeks ago? We looked at marriage. We looked at that original Relationship, And what do we see? Remember what we saw? We saw that Paul in the New Testament, I think it's 1 Timothy, he uses the fact that man 
was created first. Paul uses that as the basis for the headship in the family. So headship, male headship, is not a result of sin. It's not a result of the fall. So, okay, what is going on here? Well, this is the main point. This is it. After the fall, man and woman did not complete each other. After the fall, man and woman competed with each other. Man and woman did not complete each other. Man and woman competed with each other. You see, there's a distortion here. That perfect relationship we saw of marriage, it's been distorted, that relationship between man and woman. Now, after sin, what are we told? Woman will desire man. Now, because of sin, woman will desire man's power and position and influence. And man, what about man? Well, now, because of sin, man will tend to rule over woman with cruelty. There will be a tendency for hardship. And we, it's amazing, we, we almost get a taster of that. We do, and it's almost immediate in Genesis 3. Do you see it? There's a taster of that disrupted relationship. I'm sure that, that everyone here has heard this. You've all heard that in the ancient world, if you gave name to something, then it was a sign that you had authority and power over that. We've heard that. I mean, that takes us back to Genesis 2. That's why Adam stands and all the animals are brought to Adam and Adam gives name as, as the re- representative of God. He gives name to all the animals. It's a sign of his divinely ordained power and authority over them. Well, look what happens here in Genesis chapter 3. Do you see what happens? I think it's about verse 20. It's only after sin. It's only after the fall that Adam tries to stamp his authority over Eve. It's only after the fall, it's only after sin that Adam names Eve. Friends, in our marriage relationships in this congregation, but more so, I think, in the gender relationships in our congregation, we have to be very, very aware of the weakness, the weaknesses that sin has brought to the different sexes. Be very aware of the distortion. Woman, it's a desire we're told here, a desire for man's power and authority. Man, we are told here, has a tendency to rule and lord it over the woman. Let's be aware of that. And especially in the life 
of this church. So we've seen the serpent and the consequences that he's faced. Humiliation, what was the other one? The promise of defeat. And we've seen the consequences of sin for the woman. Let's look at the consequences of sin for the man. The consequences of sin for man. So, friend, are you a working person just now? Are you in work these days? And if so, is work a nightmare? Is it? Is work a nightmare? You know, that's a common complaint. It's something I hear a lot. You know, the boss is giving you a hassle. He's coming down pretty hard on you. Or there's work's piling up. There's the stress and pressure of work. Well, if that's the case, if that's where you are today, then see here, in these verses, where it all stems from. Because here, the first punishment we see for man is the introduction of toil. It's the introduction of toil. Now note, I don't say it's the introduction of work. Remember, we saw that already. Work was that creation ordinance in, in, in chapter 2. Work was that beautiful a gift given by God to man. No, it's toil. Because in Genesis 3, what happens is that work changes. Work changes. In chapter 2, work was enjoyable. In chapter 2, work was great. Now, chapter 3, now, work is frustrating, isn't it? You know, work before in chapter 2, it was a vacation. Now, I'm sure you'll, a lot of you would agree, work is just a, a, a means to an end. After rebellion, after sin... Work becomes a hardship and a battle because God curses the ground and the ground produces opposition to man. That perfect picture that we looked at. Do you remember it? We talked about the, the beauty of the Garden of Eden. and we, The picture was of man merrily, happily tending the garden. Remember that? Well, that picture has changed. That picture has altered. And I'm sure you know that work now is more about slaving away and trying to earn a living. Does that sound very familiar? Is that what things are like just now? Is work a hardship? Well, please understand again that that is not God's doing. That hardship and that toil of work is not to do with God. It's the consequence of sin. And please hear this. Please take this away. Our stresses and the pains of work are all the more reason to abhor and hate our sin. And they are all the more reason to cling to our Saviour. The strain of work, the agony of work. These things are all the more reason to abhor sin and to hate sin and to cling to a saviour. To cling to one who will bring you satisfaction when your work brings none. A saviour 
who will bring you joy and blessing when your work brings nothing, nothing but misery. So part of the curse on man was this toil. But I want to end, and I want to do so with this. The second thing here is the introduction for man of physical and spiritual death. There is the introduction of physical and spiritual death here. Do you you see what happens? There's a fulfillment of that promise. You know, we looked in Genesis 2 at God's prohibition. Don't eat from that tree. And we noted that there was a promise. There was sure death if there was disobedience. And we see here the confirmation of that. Verse 19, God says to man, Dust you are! Dust! And to dust you will return. And there's the other side to it as well, isn't there? That's physical death. But what else happens? Verse 23, God chucks Adam out of the garden. In verse 23, Adam and Eve, mankind, is banished. Banished from Eden. Man is cast out from the presence of God and he is cast into spiritual death. And I don't know, maybe you've been asleep this morning and maybe you haven't heard much of the sermon. Well, I would say to you, Please hear this. There's two things that we'd end with. Please hear them. The first one is, see here that there are consequences for sin. That's what we must take from Genesis 3. That there are consequences for your sin. For the way that you've acted, for the things that you have thought, for the person that you are, for the wicked heart you have. There are consequences for that. You see, how does God deal with these three perpetrators? How does he deal with them? He doesn't deal with them en masse, does he? He doesn't go to Adam and Eve and the serpent and pronounce judgment on the group. He pronounces judgment one by one. And friend, I'd say to you this morning, I would warn you this morning that that is a picture of the coming judgment. God will deal with those outside of Christ and he will deal with them one on one and he will punish sin. And the second thing Ah, the second thing. Remember the offspring. Friend, remember that offspring. Remember the promise. Because guess what? That promise has happened. Jesus Christ has now. He has already crushed the head of the serpent. He has done that. And in doing it, he has taken the consequences for sin and he has taken them upon himself. You don't have to face the consequences for your sin. 
Jesus Christ has done that already. Now, in Genesis 3, we are told that mankind, that we were kicked out of Eden. You know, we were banished. But do you know what the Bible tells us? Do you know what Revelation chapter 2 tells us? It tells us that if we are in Jesus Christ, it says this, it says, if we are in Christ, we will again be given the right to eat from the tree of life. Friend, in Jesus Christ, you have the chance of a return to Eden. In Jesus Christ, you move back into the presence of God. Now in a second, I'm going to pray. That's how we do it. That's how we end our sermons. And I know, I'm sure some of you in here are not professing Christians. Well, I would plead with you today, why don't you use that time of prayer? And why don't you use it for your eternal salvation? Why don't you, you know, the the rest of us, we are going to bow before our God in prayer. Why don't you do that too? And why don't you ask God to forgive you this morning, to forgive you for your sin? And if you do that, if you do it, the consequences of your sin, your spiritual death, it will be no more. So friends, how about it? Let's pray.